You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. doing this morning? It's good to see you guys. Really, really is. I'm not just saying that because it's in my notes. It really is good to see you all. I'm uh, James Brown, pastor elder here at Crosspoint, primarily responsible for bringing the song of the church on Sunday mornings. Thanks to John and crew for doing that. But periodically, I step into the pulpit to preach, and so that's what I'll be doing this morning. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, we are in the book of Galatians, just a couple weeks in, so you're not too far behind, in a sermon series called No Other Gospel, and it'll take us through the fall all the way up to Advent, and it's been awesome so far. To catch us up a little bit, provide a little bit of a historical background in case you guys have missed the last couple weeks. The book of Galatians is an epistle of Paul, like so many other letters in the New Testament, written to several churches in Galatia, where Paul traveled on one of his missionary journeys. This is believed to be one of Paul's earliest epistles, written around AD 50, that's 20 years after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And Paul gives us a brief intro at the start of the letter, sort of his standard greeting. And then in the next few verses, he goes on to define the gospel, which I'll go ahead and read this passage again, just because it informs the rest of the letter. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then after that, he doesn't beat around the bush, doesn't waste any time, goes straight for the kill and tells us right away his intent for writing this letter. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There you go. And in Passion, Paul writes, here's what the gospel is, and what you guys are preaching is something other than grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. He hasn't explicitly said yet what this anti-gospel is. We're going to get into that in the weeks to come. But I think for now, it's important just to mention something about the cultural and ethnic makeup of these churches in Galatia, which were comprised both of Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians. seems that some of the Jewish influencers among them wanted to infuse certain religious customs and practices of Judaism into this pure gospel message, thus changing its chemistry. It's sort of how chemistry works, right? You start adding other elements and it becomes something else entirely. In doing so, they were undermining Paul's authority and bringing into question the authenticity of the gospel that he presented to them in the beginning. This was sort of the cause of some of the division and strife amongst these churches. But fortunately, the anti-gospel of works-based righteousness that was being preached here was something Paul was extremely well-versed on, and we're going to get into his testimony and see someone who lived in those waters for so long. Uh, he was probably the most equipped to speak into this. Before we get to that, I just wanted to go ahead and pray for our time in the scriptures together this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel or the reminder that we were lost, or we were sinners, 
Lord, it was you that called us through your Son out of our darkness into your marvelous light. At your touch, as we just sang, our sleeping spirit was awakened and the light of Christ was shown into our lives. And we're going to sit with Paul's story and see something of that in the midst of it and see something of our own stories in the midst of that as well. Oh, that there is profound implications in this, not just Paul's argument here, but the heartbeat of what the gospel is. That is, your grace has demonstrated through your son. Lord, we thank you for this. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move amongst us. Lord, would you awaken hearts this morning? Lord, some for the first time been praying for that, Lord, that those would see themselves as a part of this gospel story. Lord, it is you that calls us, Lord. We could not come to you in our own power. We did not. Lord, it is only by your grace, your unmerited favor in our lives, because it pleases you to do so. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. All right. If you'd like to follow along this morning, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 11 should be Bibles in one of the seats in front of you if, uh, if you don't have your own. Also, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you when you leave here. It's our gift to you. Also have the verses on the screen behind us as we go. And the verses that we're looking at this morning comprise what is commonly referred to as the autobiographical portion of Paul's letter. It's not uncommon for Paul to share his testimony. He does so throughout Scripture. We see this in Acts 22 as he shares before an angry mob and then again in Acts 26, before King Agrippa. And he does so here again in the letter to the Galatians. Although Paul's testimony is one of radical gospel transformation, and we're going to take some time and just marvel at what, Paul, what Paul's life has become as a result of God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. This is not the, the primary reason that Paul is sharing his testimony in this instance. He's not recounting his story in order to inspire or encourage his readers or even to demonstrate the amazing grace of God, which again, how can you not but be moved by Paul's story here? There's going to be a doxological component of our time in God's word this morning. But Paul, in this instance, is all about taking care of business. He's dispelling any falsehood and misrepresentation of his character and his authority in Christ. He begins in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here, Paul is addressing his critics directly, those who would say that he came to this gospel message as a result of his own reasoning or reflection, which could mean that maybe he got it wrong or that his reasoning was faulty. Paul declares adamantly, this is not man's gospel that I'm preaching. He says, I didn't hear about it from a man, nor did a man teach it to me, but it was through a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. I was aware of Paul's story, knows what he's alluding to here. Paul's encounter with the risen Savior on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And it's a lengthy passage, but I think it's fitting to read the whole account of Paul's conversion. So we're going to do that this morning. Bear with me. It's beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But Saul, that is Paul's Hebrew's name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And from here it goes on to say that Paul immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues as the son of God and that everyone who heard was amazed. And they were saying, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Which would be pretty strange from the outside, right? I can remember certain people I went to school with, uh, and I would know them to be one way throughout the school year, and then something would happen like over the course of the summer, some kind of metamorphosis, and then suddenly, inexplicably, they'd be hanging out with a whole different crowd, and it was always like, what's going on here? When did Martin become cool? And how come I'm still not? I used to sit behind the portables exchanging, you know, garbage pail kid cards, and I assumed that this would go on forever, and now he's talking about skateboards and has a girlfriend, and it's like, what's, what's happening, right? Now, this is kind of what's going on here. The people are saying, uh, we're a little confused. Is this Saul of Tarsus, the man who just last week was arresting anyone who claimed to be a follower of Christ, and now suddenly he's proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord? There's been such an abrupt and dramatic shift in Paul's life that it feels a little jarring, And it demands the question, what happened to you, Paul? Which is, I think, the point Paul is trying to make here. He goes on to describe this in verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age. Among my people, so extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was outright hostile to the Christian faith. I mean, one commentator referred to him as a terrorist. I've never heard him referred to as such, but this seemed like an apt descriptor for Paul, someone who directs violence or hatred toward a specific group because of their values and beliefs. That sounds like a terrorist to me. He was going to annihilate 
Christianity. His course was determined, his plans were set. This was his great sense of purpose and meaning in his life, and he felt completely vindicated and justified in doing this. He says, I persecuted followers of the way to their death in Acts 22, throwing men and women in prison. And then in 1 Timothy, he referred to himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, and the worst of sinners. Jamie recounted the scene from Acts chapter 7 a few weeks ago as Paul looked on approvingly at the stoning of Stephen, first New Testament martyr, and he was completely unmoved by this, completely calloused as he watched. He was absolutely convinced that what he was doing was the right thing, and no man was going to persuade him otherwise. And to try to likely meant your death sentence, right? Paul is saying that only an encounter with Jesus Christ himself could change me, which is exactly what happened. And as wild as that sounds, and that must have been a wild story, I encountered the risen Savior, and he saved me and changed my life, really is the only way to make sense of what happened. Otherwise, it's, it's inexplicable. How did Paul go from this to this? He goes on to describe this in verses 15 and 16. But when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul thought that he was doing what he was made for, but... That's that wonderful conjunction that we see throughout Scripture. But then God intervenes. And just to say that God intervenes, it doesn't quite go far enough. God didn't just intervene. He didn't just put a stop to what Paul was doing or redirect his path as if God just took notice of Paul now in this instance. Paul is talking about a God who set him apart before he was born in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Let's talk about premeditated grace. <laughs> Timothy Keller describes the wonder of God's grace in his commentary. He marvels, saying, this is astonishing. Paul had been rest, resisting God and doing so much wrong, but God was overruling all of his intentions and using his experiences and even his failures to prepare him for first for his conversion and then to be a preacher to the Gentiles. God had been working all along to use Paul to establish the very faith he had opposed. But this is nothing new, right? This kind of thing happens all the time. We see this in Scripture throughout, the story of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis. If you haven't read it, go and read it, because it's a great story, but I'll paraphrase here. They sell him into slavery, and they leave him for dead, and then by the providence of God, he meets his brothers again, no longer a slave, but now Pharaoh's right-hand man. I'm skipping over a lot of details. But God brings about reconciliation and restoration in his relationship. And in Genesis 50:20, we read this. Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we see this so often. If you were here for the book of Ruth, the study that we went through there, as we see the lives of Ruth and Naomi, as God brings them from ruin to redemption, doesn't just leave their ruin, but makes it into something beautiful. And in the book of Esther, which we also studied together as a church, the great reversal, the gallows erected by Haman, who's sort of the villain in the story, to eradicate the Jews, he's going to hang Mordecai, unaware that he is setting the stage for his own death. 
And then throughout the book of Acts, we see the church respond in this way as they pray for boldness and they cry out to God. In Acts 4, 27 through 28, they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is God's complete sovereignty over everything, right? His promises are true. His steadfast love endures forever. Nothing can keep him from accomplishing his great plans of redemption for his people, those who are set apart from the foundation of the world. And the, the implication that this has for our lives is really profound. Uh, it means that, that we can bring everything to God. It means that your absolute mess of a past, he'll take that too. And not only will he take it, he, he's going to use it for his glory and our ultimate good, right? Working within every detail, nothing is wasted as it pertains to our God. And why does he do this? Going back to what Paul says in verse 16, he does it because it pleases him to do so. Paul would be the first to say that he did nothing to deserve this grace. He was not remotely seeking God in Christ. He was forward marching, actually, resolutely in the exact opposite direction. It was God who sought him and revealed his son to him, not just for his own comfort and his own joy, but so that he might preach him among the Gentiles. And in this moment, as he's writing to the Galatians, Paul, the religious zealot, who knows well what workspace righteousness smells like, having sat in it for so long, is able to use his background and his training to uphold and defend the gospel of Christ, the very gospel that he sought to destroy. I cry out in praise, oh, the love that sought me, oh, the blood that bought me, oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. He has plans for you and for his kingdom, which we get to be a part of building as we tell others about what God has done and is doing in our lives. It's just scandalous grace, right? It's amazing grace. Paul continues in verses 17 through 21. I'll include the tail end of verse 16 in here as well. It leads into it. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So we have here what appears to be Paul's travel itinerary post-conversion. This is not superfluous information. Paul has already argued against any falsehood regarding him arriving at the gospel message through his own reasoning or reflection. He definitely would not have come up with that apart from Jesus telling him firsthand, this is how it is. So now Paul is saying, not only did he not come up with this by himself, he also didn't hear about it from any of the other apostles. Post-conversion, he didn't visit them in Jerusalem. Paul, in fact, acted independently of anyone. He went into Arabia and then back to Damascus, and it was three whole years after his encounter with Christ that he finally went up to Jerusalem. And even then, that was only for a short visit where he met Peter and James, the Lord's brother. But there was no formal instruction taking place during this visit. Paul didn't require this. 
He'd been teaching and planning churches for three years prior to this visit. Just, this is important to note because otherwise, those who Paul is accusing of teaching a false gospel could just as easily say, well, we learned all this from Peter and John and, and the others too. So we actually know what they said. Paul is the one that got it wrong. And Paul is saying, you know, nonsense. I don't know any of these cats until much later. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul is so adamant about this point that he takes an oath, not before men, but before God himself. As a scholar of the Old Testament, Paul would have understood the seriousness of taking such an oath by submitting himself to the wrath of God if he indeed was lying, which he's not. And Paul is a, an apostle with a capital A, claiming what only a few in history can claim, that he was appointed directly by Christ to speak with a very special divine authority like that of Old Testament prophets. It's also important to note that though Paul initially acted independently of these other apostles, he didn't remain some rogue evangelist. Now, they were on the same team, so to speak, and they fully and wholeheartedly endorsed Paul's ministry and the gospel message that he was proclaiming. You read about this in verses 22 through 24. Paul writes, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Here again, Paul refutes the idea that this gospel message didn't jive with the rest of what the apostles were preaching. He's saying here that it did and it does. Furthermore, they approved of it without even having met him. I was unknown in these churches, he says. They'd only heard about me and yet they were glorifying God because of me. There's also something implied in these last few verses that, again, doesn't paint the Galatians in a particularly favorable light. They knew Paul. They interacted with him. He planted these churches and had a relationship with the people that comprised them. And yet they would just as readily dismiss his teachings and undermine his authority when these other churches in Judea, who didn't know him at all personally, who didn't have a relationship with him, were praising God for what he was doing in and through Paul. It was obvious from afar that Paul was a true ambassador of Christ and a wonderful testimony of God's amazing grace was called into question by the very people who knew him well and preferred instead to run to this anti-gospel of legalism rather than the sweetness of freedom which is offered in the one and true gospel. Paul concludes his argument in this section defending his apostolic authority and the accuracy of the gospel message that was given to him by Christ himself. But there's something more here than Paul's rhetorical skills and his ability to articulate his position well, which he does. I don't want to miss, though, the heartbeat of these verses, which is it being able to speak again to the unmerited favor of God in Christ. Now, Paul's testimony is around 2,000 years old now, but it's still powerful and relevant, and the Spirit of God speaks through Paul's story. It's a beautiful reminder to us today that this is the good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners like us because it pleases him to do so. And it is this gospel, as Timothy Keller writes here, that gives us a pair of spectacles through which we can review our own lives and see God preparing us and shaping us, even through our own failures and sins, to become vessels of his grace in the world. I love that. And so we can rejoice 
and the way that the churches in Judea rejoiced and glorified God for the radical transformation in Paul's life. As Christians, we can rejoice remembering that it was God who reached out to us in our lowly estate. That's why we sing these words often around here. Remembering long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's mournful night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke my dungeon flamed in light. My chains fell off. Let's not forget the wonder-working power of the blood of the Lamb who takes wretches like us and makes them his treasure. I don't know about you guys, but I want to sing about it now. Hope that our time in the scriptures has prepared you to sing these things, to have a heart for worship and song. Now, the band's going to come back up in just a minute. It's going to lead us in that time of worship. Before we sing, there's going to be a time of reflection. John's going to provide a little bit of background music during that time. You're invited to take advantage of that. Just sit and to pray either by yourselves or to invite others into that or your family, perhaps. And then if you're a follower of Christ, come when you're ready and receive communion with gladness. This is a visible representation of the gospel. We do this each week. We take the bread representing Christ's broken body for us and dip it in the cup representing his blood spilled for us on the cross. Scandalous grace. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not partake of communion, but that your next step would be one of repentance. And I've been praying for this all week um, as I've been preparing the sermon, but preparing, praying for it now as well. And perhaps this is that day for you, like the Apostle Paul, you experience the undeniable call of Christ in your life, that you would turn to him for forgiveness of your sins. He'll take you as you are right now, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, and come to him and experience a true sense of purpose and meaning in your life and taste the sweetness of freedom in walking with him. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.